just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages each week with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, has Michael Bloomberg blown his presidential hopes with a disastrous TV debate? Plus, has the BBC really gone downhill? And last... But uh, I'm actually a journalist. My name's Toby Young, uh, or as someone on Twitter called me the other day, Captain Bellend. (laughs) I talked to Toby Young about no-holds-barred comedy. First up. Donald Trump might be a multi-billionaire, but his wealth is nothing compared to former mayor of New York, Mike Bloomberg's $64 billion. Bloomberg is in the running for Democratic nominee, and Freddie Gray writes in this week's cover article that he isn't afraid to chuck billions of his own dollars into his campaign. So how serious of a threat is he to his Democratic rivals and to Trump? Freddie joins me now, and down the line we are joined from Oxford by former chair of Democrats Abroad UK, Bill Barnard. Freddie, you write in your piece this week that Bloomberg's campaign is like an aggressive corporate buyout. So how much of a serious contender is he in the Democratic primaries? Well, as I put in the piece, uh, Mark Hanna, the American senator, said in 1895 that there are two things that matter in American politics. The first is money and the second one is I forget what the second one is. So I think the second one actually, as we saw last night, which was after I finished my piece, is the second thing is personality. And Mike Bloomberg doesn't really seem to have one, uh, or not a very effective one on stage at any rate. So last night was a TV debate Last night was a TV debate, yes, where Mike Bloomberg had a real catastrophe, I think. And the question is now, can he spend so much money that his lack of personality, lack of charisma doesn't matter? Mm. I think that he probably can still. Bill, what did you make of Bloomberg's performance on a Wednesday night debate? Well, you know, I don't think he did himself any favours, but I think we have to step back a minute and, and ask the question... Why is it that he has had such a meteoric rise uh, in Democratic support around the country? And I think there are two reasons. One is the money, in fact, and the fact that he was able to command the airways and put together an incredible organization across the country, an incredible number of of people who are actually in offices in South Carolina and elsewhere, well, in the, the Super Tuesday states anyway. So there is that. But I think the second reason that he was able to rise so quickly is the absolute desperation that so many Democrats feel that they need a candidate who can indeed beat Donald Trump, to dump Trump. And that desperation, in a sense, has manifested itself in the the willingness to consider a newcomer who's made a move at the very last moment. And he's done extraordinarily well. I don't think he did himself any favors last night. I think there were some questions that he could clearly have anticipated, and and I suspect he and his staff did. But he, he failed to deliver the kind of a ripos that he could have given the defense of his his uh, uh, relationship with women and the whole women's set of women's issues uh, could have been, I think, much stronger than it was. Uh, he should have been able to point out, as he did in passing, but not to making the point centrally, that these are accusations that were largely aimed at his company and events within his company, not at him, and, and point to his uh, charitable giving, which is a bit extraordinary to political candidates who were female and two female causes. Yes, I, I agree with that, Bill. And, and you know, to be charitable to uh, this great uh, philanthropist, 
he didn't have long to prepare for it. But he did have his advisors were supposedly cramming him for the last few days. And it felt like he froze. But I would also agree with Bill on the fact that actually these debates, they come and go. And most people, us journalists get very excited about them. Most people don't really even pay any attention whatsoever. So I think in a week's time, we could have completely forgotten about yeah. this. Car I crash. think that that's very true. And I think the other thing is, what is the impact of a debate or even a poor debate performance? Uh, there are millions of people, hundreds of millions of people who will continue to see the ads that are running constantly, so especially in the Super Tuesday states. And those numbers dwarf the numbers of people who might have been watching last night. I think, too, that he, he has a real story to tell. I mean, here's somebody who is the real uh, success story, the real American dream realized in a way that uh, Donald Trump could only hope to emulate. He came from... Uh, a relatively poor background and has succeeded beyond his wildest dreams or anyone's wildest dreams. Uh, and I'm sure that that's the story that's being told in some of these ads. But it didn't come through tonight. He didn't have that relatability uh, that is so important in a political figure. Freddie, do you think his similarity to Trump is actually a vulnerability for him? I mean, in the debate, you saw like, female candidates accusing him of having a pretty bad track record when it comes to women, you know, and he's also not being a long-term Democrat either. Mm. So is that actually a bad thing for him? Well, I think, does he possess the te- Trump's Teflon ability where nothing seems to stick or hurt Trump? He always seems to somehow get away with it. I mean, in, in the presidential debates in 2016, after the first one, it was widely thought that Hillary Clinton had destroyed Trump. Uh, and we all know what happened. So I think Bloomberg's kind of gargantuan wealth, which will annoy a lot of people, his dubious history with women or whatever you want to, however you want to call it, I think it will hurt him in a way because he doesn't quite have that sort of devil madcap skill that Trump has. And Bill, a lot of people have been criticising him for that fortune, saying that he's just chucking money at the campaign. You know, this is bad for democracy because it's a corrupting force. What do you make of that? Well, I don't think most Americans really enjoy watching politicians indulge in the politics of envy. Uh, we've had uh, successful people in the past, very wealthy people in the past, uh, members of the elite who have championed uh, the cause of the common man uh, the, out there. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt was came from a privileged background, and yet he received the devoted uh, enthusiasm from great hordes of people around the country during the Depression in particular. John Kennedy is another example. Uh, so I don't think that that's necessarily a barrier if people sense that you are authentic and that you are genuinely on their side and you you uh, feel uh, something for the difficulties that they face in their everyday lives and that you're proposing a set of, uh, of issues that uh, will advance their interests. So I don't think it's necessarily a barrier. Uh, it is, I think, somewhat demeaning to the candidates to, uh, simply to decry his wealth. That's not the point. The point is what does he stand for? What uh, issues would he push? What, what uh, accomplishments would he try to implement? I agree with that. I think, um, you know, if anything in America, the fact that he's, uh, what is it, six times richer than Trump will, will be to his advantage. You know, he's, he's more of a billionaire, more of a success. But I do think that uh, Bloomberg's big problem is not just his wealth. It's that he sort of represents 
a kind of figure that at the moment is very toxic in politics. Mm. I mean, he ticks all these very progressive boxes like uh, same-sex marriage. He's uh, very keen on combating climate change. Um, he's pro-choice. He's pro-choice, exactly. And all these things make him sort of controversial in middle America. They will, they will rally the base, the, the democratic base, but they're controversial in middle America. And he also, more importantly, does something that Trump really doesn't do or goes against, which is he represents, if you want to call it globalism, he's, he's almost the sort of perfect avatar of globalism. He has a, a sort of international business. He speaks at all those kind of conferences, most of them he sponsors. And he is an elite figure in a, in a sort of different way. To, it's not just about his wealth. He's an elite figure. And mm-hmm. there is this hatred of elites. And it's very strong in America. And I think it would be uh, naive to deny that. But if you look at his economic proposals, it's clear that he's not simply reflecting what many on the conservative uh, wing of, the, of politics would, would favor. I mean, the transaction tax that he's proposed, the other taxes that he's proposed, the other proposals that he's made in the economic sphere uh, are indeed rather progressive. And most progressives would agree not only with his economic program, but as you point out, with a whole host of issues that he's taken uh, positions on, gun control, uh, the environment uh, and others. Now, Freddie, you mentioned in your piece that he's got one more weapon in his arsenal as well as money, which is his access to data. Can you tell us about that? Well, yes, Bloomberg built uh, his entire empire on data. He has bought up all sorts of engagement platforms with a view to winning the presidency. And it's thought that in the coming weeks, assuming he doesn't now drop out because of a car, one car crash debate, it's thought that in the coming weeks he will bombard every American that he he wants to target with highly specific social media advertising. And what I find quite funny about that is that when Barack Obama did that in 2012, everybody said it was brilliant. He was harnessing the power of friendship. Donald Trump did the same sort of thing in 2016. There are differences. But everybody decided that was brainwashing and that he was probably using Vladimir Putin to to win the election. I think if Bloomberg does this sort of phenomenal spend on digital advertising and it's successful, we'll hear that it's a very positive thing again. I find that a little bit disgusting. And Bill, Super Tuesday is coming up on the 3rd of March. It's a day when the most US states uh, hold their primaries on the same day. What do we have to look out for there in terms of Bloomberg's prospects? The real question we'll have to see in in South Carolina and then on Super Tuesday is how that moderate... uh, lane sorts itself out, or if it sorts itself out. I mean, the peculiar thing about the Democratic primary is that it's not winner-take-all the way Republican primaries, some of them are, and the way that many Democratic primaries used to be. It is proportional, and you have to get at least 15% of the vote before you get any delegates out of a state. Uh, so you may have a situation, for example, where if, if so long as Bernie Sanders can command 25 to 30 percent of the vote, he might be able still to capture almost all of the delegates in, say, delegate-rich California or Texas. So it'll be very interesting to see how that moderate wing sorts itself out over the next uh, two weeks. But Bill, I'd, actually, I'd like to ask you that about that, because in 2016, uh, moderate, I suppose, establishment Republicans all managed to cannibalize each other exactly. and pave the way for Trump. It looks as though that's happening at the moment with Sanders. And it does indeed, I agree. And, and it's uh, why I think so many who do feel that, that um, Sanders would be vulnerable uh, to Trump and that Trump might very well prevail. It's why they're so uh, concerned about it, but how they deal with it. Do you think that's where Bloomberg comes in? He, he just can say, I'm the, only, I'm the only one that can 
sustain this moderate lane. I think that's exactly what he what he is saying and will say. The real question is whether or not he, as you say, he can overcome the limitations of his own presence and personality and become the kind of empathetic candidate, or at least the kind of candidate that can project uh, a degree of command and certainty in the direction in which he wants to move to convince the American people that they should put their, his trust, their trust in him. Freddie and Bill, thanks very much. And to hear more from Freddie on American politics, he has his own podcast. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash Americano. Next, has the BBC's output gone downhill? In this week's issue, Douglas Murray writes that it no longer produces highbrow cultural programmes that it used to do so well, and his loyalty to the BBC has finally worn off. He joins me on the podcast now together with Claire Fox, director of the Institute of Ideas and a panellist on the BBC's Moral Maze. So Douglas, can you tell us about your conversion into a BBC sceptic over the years? Yes, there are several reasons for it. Uh, of course, this bounces off the news that was reported in some of the Sunday papers that the Boris Johnson government is looking to seriously prune back the BBC. And and basically, one of the things I say in the column is that it's just become harder and harder over the years for people to justify the licence fee, which means that everyone who owns a television pays uh, a tax, basically, to the BBC. And it's, it's, it's become harder and harder to do for a range of reasons. For some people, they don't like the bias, as they see it, of the news. There are people from the left who say that, people from the right who say that. There are people who say, look, Netflix makes better dramas, Netflix now makes better documentaries, Amazon provides a bigger range of services, and all that sort of thing. That's actually not the point I make about it. The point I make about it is that my own disillusionment has come about from the fact that in recent years it's become clearer and clearer that the BBC has no interest in promoting what we used to call high culture. And if a public sector broadcaster is to exist, it seems to me that its content should be more elevating than that of its commercial rivals. And one of the strange things is that in recent years, the BBC has simply not been able to make that argument. Nobody could make it for it. Uh, There is not one programme weekly on the main channels of the BBC that does anything like what I grew up getting from the BBC. Many people, other people did. And so if the BBC is not going to be a force for good like that, it seems to me it's incredibly hard to justify its ongoing taxation. Claire, you're a long-time contributor to the BBC. Do you agree with Douglas that this has been a change over time? I certainly agree that things have changed. The difficulty I have is that I want to defend the BBC. I'm kind of one of those critical friends who believes in the values that the BBC espoused historically. The difficulty is, is that the BBC despise me for espousing <laughs> their own values. Um, it's a very peculiar situation when Douglas correctly says they no longer can make the case for themselves as you know, public service broadcasters whose commitment to high culture for all is their raison d'etre. And of course, that's, there's no harm in having entertainment alongside that or any of the other aspects of the BBC that we're familiar with. But it seems that the BBC has become embarrassed about making its case for itself. It spends its whole time in kind of fits of committee meetings that are full of self-loathing about how they are no longer relevant to the public. They then try and second-guess who the public are, invariably patronising and condescending them as they do so and getting it completely wrong. So they think, oh, working class people, let's dumb down for them. 
or let's have a few vox pops so that we can show that we know who they are. You know, inevitably they spend their whole time worrying about young people, inner city youth, ethnic minorities, and then creating these demographic snippets of programmes that are ultimately excruciatingly full of a kind of self-conscious identity politics version of what they imagine young black men or young black women might like or whoever it is they happen to be targeting that particular week. So in that sense they've forgotten their universal purpose of being a fantastic important public service for everybody, a universal service. However I still want to defend that ideal, that Rethian ideal against those who just say well they've given up the ghost so let's get rid of the license fee. Well, can I push back on that a little bit? I mean, you say that it's um, they've lost their universal appeal, but what Douglas talks about in terms of high culture is what a lot of young people today might consider to be the culture of um, necess- maybe the middle upper classes or not necessarily black, but more white. Do you think that that's a section of the population that the BBC is trying to move away from rather than just saying we're moving towards a certain other sub- subsection? Yeah, but, but that's an assumption you're adopting their assumption which is that their job is to accommodate to what people spontaneously might think oh you know I don't really like high culture why would I watch it instead of being its greatest advocate Mm. you know so the the point I would make is why do you assume that young inner city uh, you know teenagers can't be brought into at some stage discovering opera uh, finding out more about Beethoven or you know great uh, drama or, or, or any of these things via the BBC. It has the luxury of being able to be, as it were, almost a missionary for those works mm. of art. And not to say, to, you know, what do people want, but to say, what do people deserve? What great drama, uh, documentary, what high standards can we show people so that they think they don't want this? You know, I, I used to be a teacher, you can probably tell. But if you went into any uh, class in a further education co- you know, college as I taught and said, what would you like me to teach you? They would invariably want me to teach them that which they were familiar with. I understand that. But my job as a teacher was to say, well, you don't know what you don't know. I'm going to introduce you to a whole range of things that you think instinctively you'll hate, but you won't. And these are not designed for white middle class people. They are great works of art that are for all of you. And guess what? If you teach sufficiently confidently a range of people who would never have anticipated that they would have fallen in love with Ibsen or absolutely had a love affair with Mozart, suddenly discover that it is for them because that's what great art and great culture is. Douglas, you make, and I think Claire, you would agree, you know, that you you make the point that there is such a thing as high culture as highbrow I think that's um, not uh, that's something that not everyone would necessarily agree with it mean it's an incredibly philosophical point even whether or not they're high and lower pleasures do you think it's not just a moving goalpost in that pop music in the last century might have been seen as lowbrow but now we see Madonna and Michael Jackson as slightly more cultural than they probably were seen at the time well there's a lot of presumptions in there <laughs> Not least the idea that anyone thinks, say, Madonna is now highbrow culture. (laughs) I think you had to take it up with our editor. No, I mean, Madonna and Michael Jackson would be good lowbrow culture, if you want to get into the categorisation claim. My point is, isn't really playing that game. It's just to say that 
Claire refers to the fact that the Reithian ideals of the BBC she'd like to see back. But the fact is that the Reithian ideals of the BBC are as dead of, as Reith himself is. Um, <laughs> it, it, it is simply not the case that the, the, the corporation believes in something like the idea which, uh, which it started with, which was that it, it should be, among other things, able to educate and improve. Now, how do you do that? A whole range of things. We could get stuck on the cultural element of it, and I'm very happy to, uh, and I think that it's, it, it's certainly I can explain why I think that uh, certain novelists are better than a pop song, and it might be good for you as well as imbibing bits of the pop culture, which is around us all anyway, all the time, to imbibe things which are going to give us greater satisfaction over the lengths of our lives and deeper sense of purpose and a deeper seriousness, you might say. But you can, you can also play exactly this same thing with the BBC's attitude towards serious discussion. Now, as I mentioned in the piece, where do people of all ages now go for serious long-form discussion? They don't go to the BBC. They don't watch Newsnight. They certainly don't listen to the Today programme. They go to YouTube and in their millions, young and old, they listen to multi-hour discussions of serious depth and breadth. And, you know, you can go to YouTube and hear the leading biologists of our day talking about where the latest discoveries in their area are and their specialisms are. You can do this across every sector. And the point about this is, just a final point on this, is that the BBC has gone in exactly the wrong and opposite direction of the one it could have done. It has decided that the people, the public in general, uh, can't put up with more than sort of three-minute multi-guest ding-dongs. And at the same time, the audiences are going to serious long-form discussion where people take discussion and ideas seriously. And this is a catastrophe for the BBC because it's completely misjudged itself. It is in deep fear of accusations of elitism, whereas it has the medium, which is the most anti-elite medium in the world that we've ever come up with, and it could use it to communicate seriously, and instead it's gone down the other way. Mm. And Claire, you say you're you're a defender of the BBC, but only reluctantly. What, what, does your continued support come with strings attached? What would you like to see changed? Well, it, it is absolutely the case that what Douglas says is now becoming more popular. I've found in the last few years that more and more people just will not defend the BBC. They underestimate their audience. I think that's what Douglas is saying, and I think that's really absolutely spot on. You know, the everything that... that the spectator themselves organise these um, public debates. Myself at the Academy of Ideas, we have that big festival, the Battle of Ideas. We found that there is an absolute appetite. In fact, that people are crying out exactly. for more serious discussion forms. They're not actually sitting there going, give me a three-minute segment. You know, I can only cope with a, a soundbite uh, thought for a moment. People want to dig deeper. And everything from, dare I mention it, Brexit that has raised all sorts of issues around constitutional questions on whichever side you were on means that people were kind of looking around for ideas and uh, background information and depth and so on. And it's sad to me that the BBC hasn't used that platform to provide that. I'm not really making a point about bias. 
I'm talking about form. In fact, one of the things that strikes me, if you look at the, the creation of BBC Sounds and the enthusiasm that whenever you go to any BBC meeting now, everybody talks about podcasts in this obsessive fashion and says, young people, podcast, podcast, young people, young people, podcast, podcast, podcast. <laughs> and you never get anybody to tell you what those podcasts should contain. Hmm. In other words, the form, which is the podcast, is an obsessive way for them to think they're connecting with people rather than to put their energies into what that podcast might contain i.e the substance of the matter the reason i am still reluctant to give up on the bbc is because i am an anti-dumber downer not just as i don't it's true it's not just a cultural question um in terms of high art or low art or, or lowbrow or any of that i love strictly i am happy to have bbc radio one i'm not really interested in that but the whole tenor of the bbc it seems to me needs to return to using this platform as a privilege mm. if you're going to level this tax then you have to say to yourself and to everybody else, we have the luxury of experimentation. We're going to try out new things. We're going to commit ourselves to making documentaries that nobody would make that might not even be popular. We're then going to promote them so they be, might become more popular. We're going to not worry so much about audience figures obsessively looking on Twitter to see what the reactions are, but have the confidence to make programmes you believe in try them out, push them out, and then believe that you've created something of quality. And then there might be an argument about what the quality is, but they are not driven by that. I simply don't want to dispense with the notion of it. And I do agree that the present BBC is very difficult. As I say, I'm defending the BBC in a way that most people in the BBC wouldn't defend itself. But I would like to still argue in defence of a national broadcaster like the BBC having those values and using that platform. And therefore, I think on that basis, it would be a cheap tax. The pruning question, just if I could just say, is, is quite important, though, because there was a funny... Of course, they did use Twitter to do this. The BBC press office put out a tweet um, uh, last week, which was funny, showing how much the BBC had improved by showing us the limited number of stations they had 15 years ago and the multitude of stations they had today, mm. as though, after all that they think that quantity trumps quality. And I think if they could remove that notion and concentrate on quality, then we would, I would celebrate a, a quality national broadcaster and I would defend to the death, to the hilt, uh, paying a, a, a licence fee for that. Douglas and Claire, thanks very much. Hello, I'm Isabel Hardman. Hello, I'm James Forsyth. And I'm Katie Balls, and you can join us all every day for Coffee House Shots, our daily politics podcast. Just search on the iTunes store or an alternative phone provider. And why not leave us a review if you like it? And last, ever wanted to try your hand at stand-up? It's always been on Toby Young's bucket list, and last week he finally did it. Offering him the chance to get on stage with Andy Shaw, co-founder of Comedy Unleashed, a monthly comedy night setting out to provide a no-holds-barred alternative to mainstream comedy. Toby and Andy join me now. So, Toby, how did your set go? It went OK. It was always on my bucket list. You know, I've always fantasised about doing stand-up, like many people, I guess. But actually taking the step is something else, because it is pretty scary. I, I did do 12 weeks in the West End in a one-man show based on 
the book I wrote about um, trying and failing to take Manhattan called How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. And on the very last night, that was all scripted because we had a director and someone in a lighting box, musical and visual cues and so forth. So it all had to be scripted. But on the very last night... I did about sort of 10 minutes mm. of just kind of telling funny stories about all the things that had gone wrong in the course of the 12-week production. And that went over so much better than anything in the actual one-man show. I thought, God, that's how I should have done it in the first <laughs> place. But that was in 2003. So since then, it's been an ambition of mine to do stand-up one day. And um, I got to know Andy Shaw and uh, Andrew Doyle, who have um, created this fantastic comedy club, or a, a night anyway, at a comedy club. Uh, every second Tuesday in Bethnal Green called the Backyard Comedy Club. Their night is called Comedy Unleashed. I got to know them. I went to a couple of the nights and I thought, well, this, if I'm ever going to do it, mm. here's the forum in which to do it because it's a pretty broad-minded audience. There are kind of, uh, quite a few Brexiteers in the audience. I mean, it's, it's not right-wing or left-wing, but it's a kind of more of a broad mix than your typical comedy club. going to tolerate you know, a stale, pale male Tory like me. So I, I volunteered to do 10 minutes yeah. and then they immediately kind of uh, said, great, and and I got back in touch and booked me in and the night sold out. So I was, you know, I was on the hook and uh, did it, you know, last Tuesday. I thought you did very well, actually. And there's a video of you on YouTube now already. We can hear a little bit of it now. So in 2001, I wrote a piece for The Spectator called Confessions of a Porn Addict. <laughs> Seemed like a good idea at the time. So someone screen grabbed that, put it on Twitter. And literally within an hour, headline in the Evening Standard... Pressure mounts on Theresa May as university czar confesses to being porn addict. <laughs> Thanks a lot, George Osborne. I thought you were a Tory. And Andy, Toby's got you to thank for this. So can you tell us about Comedy Unleashed? Yeah, well, uh, I became friends with Andrew Doyle. And uh, we... Of Titania McGrath fame. Of Titania McGrath know. fame. Now, he was, he was actually doing Jonathan Pye then, and he was doing a lot of his own stuff. He's incredibly prolific, is Andrew. And uh, we both felt that we needed a comedy club that uh, was a permissive space for people to try out new ideas, to experiment, to make mistakes, to test things out with an audience that's receptive to that. And we were both really bored with the blandness of much comedy that was on the TV, on the radio, and in fact on the comedy circuit. And also the cancel culture mentality was, was creating quite a conformist, mm. um, sort of risk-averse approach for many comedians. And we were being approached by people who were saying, do you know, I just want, I just want somewhere where I can, I can try things out. So we uh, set up Comedy Unleashed a couple of years ago. It started out uh, with about 30 people <laughs> turning up on a Tuesday night. How big is the room? And it's 300 people <laughs> now, and it sells out uh, a month in advance. And in fact, we're putting on more shows each month, and we're going to take it on national tour later on this year. And if that works well, we'll take it on a proper you know, tour of, across the whole of the country, including the seaside towns and the little forgotten towns uh, next year, hopefully. And we've also started commissioning material just to go on to the channel in addition to the stand-up comedy routines. When you say permissive and you mention cancel culture there, I mean, a lot of people are going to think that means it's a right-wing club because you're just looking to, for offensive jokes that nowadays is not so woke. But you say that it's not necessarily just a right-wing thing. No, it, it, it absolutely isn't. And it's, it's often mischaracterised by certain people as right-wing because there's a sense of caution about dealing with certain subjects. So our rule is if it's funny, it's funny. And the audience is the judge of that. So try things out. 
And because we live in a climate where people are quite concerned about, about dealing with particular subjects or, the, or people see things in a, in, a, in a way where it's the usual targets, people who break out of that are, are sometimes mistrusted and their motivations are mistrusted. And that's mm. the exact opposite of what we want to achieve. We want people to follow their art. And if they think it's funny, test it out in a public space where the audience can be the judge of whether it's funny or not. Toby, what did you find hardest about the whole experience? remembering my lines when I did my one-man show first night I forgot (laughs) my lines and uh, my wife was in the audience and um, when I looked at her or saw her looking at me I knew that she'd realized that something had gone (laughs) wrong and then she sort of put her head in her hands and that made it you know 10 times harder to remember what my line was so I just darken the audience uh, (laughs) Yeah, it was helpful at the Comedy Unleashed to have a really bright light in my face. I couldn't see any... Of course, my wife said, there's no way I'm coming. (laughs) She just found it too painful. Uh, But uh, I did, in fact, I ended up, you know, back in 2003, just plunging forward Mm. to the next bit I could remember. But then I couldn't remember how much I'd left out. And I was thinking, oh, God, people are going to be walking out thinking, 20 minutes, that was a little bit quick for a one-man show. I paid £12 for this. But actually, I'd only forgotten, like... uh, couple of lines so I was terrified that yeah. the same would happen to me at Andy's club and so I sort of spent the kind of about an hour beforehand pacing up and down in the green room kind of desperately kind of reciting it trying to commit it trying to fix it in, in my head I remember when Andy said 10 minutes Toby 10 minutes at which point you know full-blown panic you know, set in <laughs> I thought I was gonna faint I was so nervous Is and it in the, the hardest end, thing that you've ever done I wouldn't say it's the hardest thing I've ever done. The level of nervousness beforehand was certainly up there. I mean, I literally at one point thought I might pass out because my <laughs> heart was racing so fast. And you know, you kind of think, well, okay, it's only 300 people, but um, it's being filmed. It's going to go on their YouTube channel. Half the people in the audience are my friends. Most of them are journalists. They're here to see me crash and burn, you know, and they're going to gleefully kind of tweet about it and write about it <laughs> if I do. So, you know, the stakes were reasonably high. So, I, I mean, one, one reason for doing it, Cindy, is because um, I've started this organisation called the Free Speech Union, which is a non-partisan mass membership organisation that stands up for the speech rights of its members. Mm. And the story I told in my stand-up routine was all about being cancelled myself in 2018 and, and how, you know, two years later I decided to set up this organisation to help other people who found themselves, you know, targeted by outrage mobs for cancellation. So that was sort of another reason for doing it. And... Andy, I remember I went to Edinburgh Fringe last year and I sat in the front row for a comedy set and just hoping that they won't pick on me because if they asked me where I work, I'd have to say The Spectator. (laughs) And I just thought, oh my God, I'm going to get torn to shreds. Do you think it's true that comedy has this sort of left-wing bias? And if so, when has that started to be a thing? Well, it's funny. I I think it's beyond left and right. I think there are a couple of things. I think one is it's just very, very cautious and very, very bland and very, very risk-averse. So if you look at the way that things are commissioned for certain broadcasters, it's toned down and playing it safe. I think the other thing that people haven't really recognised is they're still fighting the battles of 20 and 30 years ago. So the establishment is seen in a particular way, whereas the establishment now is, you know, Greta Thunberg lecturing Davos. You know, that is the establishment. And where's the humour? Where are the comedians looking for the... Uh, to satirise mm. that sort of phenomenon. The phenomenon of children saying, you've stolen our future, mm. is, is, a, is a big thing in society. 
but who's looking at that? So I, I think a lot of comedians are looking in the same direction that, you know, Ben Elton would have been, you know, going on about Margaret Thatcher 30 years ago. And they are largely the establishment. And they haven't recognised that the, there are lots of establishments and they're all over the place. And the, and the culture that dominates it is ripe for satire because I, I, I go through the day laughing at, at so many ludicrous things and, and so many odd things that occur to me. And then I watch a comedian on TV or turn on the radio and there's nothing about it. It's the same old targets, the same old people. And it's actually very bland and predictable and boring. So I wouldn't characterise it as just left wing. Mm. I just think people are really missing the mark. And we need now a sort of almost like a new punk, a new sort of revolution, mm. a new, new counterculture. Sort of, a new counterculture. And we need to take some risks. And, and that's what we're trying to do with the club is just open it up for anyone who's got anything interesting to say. Anyone who wants to challenge any ideas, sort of um, challenge a few orthodoxies, be a little bit heterodox and try stuff out. And, just, uh, and there'll be some crap and there'll be some utter genius, mm. but just let it happen. It's interesting that you use the word establishment there because I think of Comedy Unleashed as being like the club that Peter Cook started in the 60s <laughs> called The Establishment, which kind of uh, triggered the whole satire boom. And when you're at Comedy Unleashed, when you're at the Tuesday night and you see the different comics perform, um, you very much get the impression that you're part of you know, a burgeoning movement, that this is ground zero of the anti-woke resistance movement. It's, you know, you've given birth to something here, which, uh, which hopefully will kind of percolate through the rest of the culture. Well, one of the things I really like is, is, is not just the comedy itself, but the atmosphere in the bar. Because we have a whole mixture of people. I mean, mm. there really is. If you, if you want to look at diversity, that's what you've got in the bar. The YouTube channel has now attracted a whole younger audience. So about half the audience that's coming now have come from the YouTube channel. And they're a far younger demographic. Mm. And they'll be next to, you know, David Goodhart, the academic, <laughs> next to Morris Glassman, the uh, Labour academic, who, by the way, you've started a trend now because Morris now wants to do Fantastic. it. So we're going to put Morris on in, uh, in, in April. I'll be there. Um, but, you know, there are you know, radical feminists who are sick of getting called turfs. You've got a whole load of people who are just there out of pure curiosity. So you've got a genuine mix of audience and there's just a buzz. It, it feels sort of liberating. I absolutely love the atmosphere. One of the hazards of being in the bar is that, um, particularly after you've just performed, I discovered, is that lots of people come up and ask if they can do selfies with you. And knowing what happened to Jordan Peterson, who was effectively cancelled by Cambridge University because a photograph of him appeared standing next to a fan wearing a proud Islamophobe T-shirt, I'm kind of terrified that one of these people I've done a selfie with is going to emerge out of the woodwork as some kind of far-right nutcase. Not that, there are, not that it's a far-right club, of course, but uh, you have to be a little bit careful, I think. <laughs> so, Toby, are you going to go back there on stage again? Well, I just I just ran that up the flagpole with Andy, and he was uh, he he was actually um, pretty downbeat. He was like, "Well, maybe we could squeeze <laughs> you in, perhaps for five minutes at Christmas." Um, so perhaps it didn't go as well as I thought. <laughs> Toby and Andy, thanks very much. And to hear more from Andy, he is the co-host of Spectator Life's That's Life podcast, a sideways look at current affairs, speaking to guests from Jeff Norcott to Julia Hartley Brewer. You can hear it on Spectator Radio. And that's it for this week. Do pick up the latest issue to read all the pieces discussed in this episode, as well as Paul Collier on how to save the North, William Moore on the joy of breadboards, and former Northern Ireland Secretary Julian Smith's diary. 
And remember that we also have a special offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12 if you go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher and we'll even throw in a free £20 Amazon voucher. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. 